You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I read an article a little while ago called Rural Kansas is Dying. I drove 1,800 miles to find out why by Corey Brown. And I said, oh my gosh, I have to talk to this person. I've lived this experience and these are some amazing insights. Corey's a former staff writer with the Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, Premier Magazine, and Businessweek. She was the co-founder of Zester Media and uh, now is on the board of Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit network of chefs working to change the sustainable food landscape. Corey, I'm really excited to chat with you. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Chuck. Now, I know you're originally from Kansas. Can you just give us a little bit of background on where you're from? And I grew up in Wichita, and uh, my dad's family goes back his generation, his dad and his grandfather in Wichita. So... Late 1800s, they came. My grandfather came as an itinerant preacher. There was a lot going on in Kansas in those days, and he was there to uh, establish churches. There were German reform churches. And my mom's family goes back just as far, and they were salespeople, tinkers, and gardeners and farmers. As I say, my, my DNA has uh, marinated in, uh, for 100 years in Kansas. I get the impression from your writing that you are focused on food. Is that what brought you back to Kansas? The piece ran in New Food Economy, where I, I'm a regular contributor, and um, they're wonderful. And it's a really a look at how the food system is changing and how food as both a cultural and a, a business is in a period of transformation in this country. I was, in doing a series of reporting, I realized that rural Kansas had become a food desert, which struck me as how can the breadbasket be a food desert? And a food desert is technically an area that has limited or no access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And I couldn't figure out how a state that was 90% agriculture didn't have fresh food. So I went to look at that, at efforts to correct that problem. And that's when I was driving around in rural Kansas and realized, wait a minute, there's no food here because there's no people here. Of course there's no food here. There's not enough people to, to justify a delivery truck. And that's when I started diving into, okay, what's happened here? And it happened, it's been happening gradually. It went from being a gradual depopulation as the result of agricultural mechanization to a pretty dramatic one. A lot of towns have lost a third to a half of their population in the last generation. Economists talk about the commodity trap and the idea that once you get stuck doing commodities, the name of the game is to do them more efficiently at a lower price. You talk about this a little bit in your piece, and I wanted to give you a chance to set the scene and talk a little bit about the history of agriculture in Kansas and how the commodity aspect of it 
has really become kind of the driving force that is, you know, having the results that you point out? In Kansas, it's always been a commodity game. If you go back to the beginning of, of really the big sodbuster plant the pole place in red winter wheat, it's never been about serving a local need. It's always been a, a boom bust trying to feed, you know, get, you know, as much grain as you can onto that train and get it out to the world. It has never been an agricultural economy that had any kind of local orientation. They weren't trying to feed their neighbors. It's what led to the Dust Bowl. They turned over the prairie and planted it, you know, as fast as they possibly could. And that's been the game all along. And people came there for free land in the Homestead Act, and they either survived by growing or they left. I mean, that's the Great Plains story. It's, it was an environmental disaster that ended up in the Dust Bowl. It seems to me that farming's always had a certain level of volatility to it. I grew up on a family farm, but not a commercial farm. We've got a, one member of our family that was a commercial farmer doing eggs. And I remember distinctly, like some Christmases, you know, they would have like presents for everybody. And other ones, it was like, we got no money. We're totally broke. I remember one year they built their house and paid cash. And then they lost the whole farm subsequently later because they, you know, had too many bad years in a row. It felt a little like gambling to me. How is the volatility now different than back then? Or is it the same? It's just on a bigger scale. They have improved the the agricultural practices so that it's not the horrifying environmental destruction, but it is still big machines and lots of chemicals. The boom bust is the result of commodity prices going up and down. Right now they're down and the threat of trade wars and and sort of the dawn of trade wars is, is all bad for commodity crops. But also the whole world is playing the commodity crop game. So, you know, a thousand acre farmer in Ellis County is very specifically and directly competing with the government of China, with the government of Brazil, as they plow under huge tracts of land to plant the same exact crop. The market doesn't value anyone's wheat over another person's wheat. Even if you, as a farmer, are able to grow higher protein wheat, it's still commodity wheat, and you're competing, you know, you're getting the price that the big, giant operation working with machines that are twice to 10 times your size, the size of what you have, in the Ukraine. There's literally no way for you to benefit from doing a better job. It's such a no-win game for American farmers. It's hard to believe that they still play it, but they play it and they play it hard. The name of the game is to get bigger and lower your cost by having more equipment or more chemicals or what have you. And fewer people. And you can do it with, but the chemicals come at a huge cost and the seeds are hugely expensive and the machines are hugely expensive. So you have to be trying to desperately increase your yields and desperately get more land. That game now is being played with, you need 30,000 to 50,000 acres. That's big operation. But if 
with chemicals and with machines, a farmer by himself can manage 10,000 acres. That's different. And that means there's fewer people out there. It takes fewer people. It's not like you get bigger and so you hire people. You get bigger and you do it all by yourself. And then there's new technology, new satellite technology. There's all sorts of things that enable a single farmer to manage many more acres. The downside of that is the cultural cost of not having anyone left in town to play with not having anyone in town to go to school with your kids, not having enough people in town to support a hospital or to even a doctor, even a regional hospital or even a regional doctor. The schools are tinier and tinier and people have to travel farther and farther to go to school. So the, the real price of all of that is the loss of community and the loss of a sense of culture and a sense of place. Can you talk a little bit about Downs? You start the story by describing driving into Downs, a place that you had been years earlier. Can you kind of give us a before and after picture of a place like this so we people can visualize what is going on here? So it was 30 years ago, I was in a wedding in Downs. It was what I thought of as a quintessential small Kansas town. It had everything but it was just small. And there were lots of people on the streets. The stores weren't empty, but there weren't many of them. It still had a town newspaper. It still had definitely a sense of place. And when I came back, it had lost a third of its population in those 30 years. A lot of those store windows were blank. The feedback I got from the people of Downs, they were quite angry that I had singled them out because they thought, they rightly said, there's a lot smaller towns. There's a lot of towns that are dying faster than us. You know, we are hanging in there. They were hanging in there by moving businesses out of the storefronts and into their homes. They were doing all kinds of things to try to help support the population. So they felt that I had just looked at their town and seen the absence of people on the street. It's only like three or four blocks. And I hadn't given them credit for all the work they'd done to support their population. But there's not even a place to get a cup of coffee there. I so appreciate how hard they're working to support their community. But, you know, you lose a third of your population in a generation, and there's no sign that that's going to stop. And there's no one in the state, zero person, zero government, zero anything with any plan to help you grow or even to help you stop losing people. And the prognosis is pretty sad. So I, I hurt for them and I understood their sort of anger at me for singling them out when there's more horrifying stories. But the truth is that I knew people there. You had a before and after snapshot, in a sense. Yeah, and, and, it, and it was the place that I could say, yeah, this is real. And I could talk to people who grew up there and said, yeah, we don't go back anymore. It's dead. 
I really feel for them. I genuinely hurt for them because they really believe that there's a future for them in that they're dying more slowly than others. I do see that a lot in very rural areas. Like here in in Western Minnesota, I'm in central Minnesota. As you go north of me as well, there's a lot of places like this where a generation ago there was 800 people. Now there's 300 people. You really have two groups in a lot of these places. One, people over 65, and the other one, this kind of strange group in their like uh, early 20s that are struggling in a lot of uh, social ways. They probably should have left, but the fact that they couldn't get out, high opioid use, that kind of thing, really uh, kind of struggling populations. And you said it in your article at one point, that, you know, a lot of them are urging their kids to move to the city while at the same time holding in their minds that, you know, if we just stop the bleeding, if we just slow things down, uh, maybe it will be okay. How do you think you have that kind of cognitive dissonance? Is that just a coping mechanism? I'm so aware of the history of Kansas and the, the boom bust of, you know, people rushing to grab the free land in Kansas under the Homestead Act. And, and it attracted, I know, certainly my family. They had nothing to lose. This was their chance. They were leaving a situation where they had nothing. They didn't have land. They were rushing to try to grab their piece of America. And they were hanging in there. The idea of leaving was like giving up on your dream of having a piece of America. I would joke with my parents. It's like, why did our people stop here? We could have moved on. We could have been on. There's another gold rush. It was in California. You right, know? <laughs> right, right. And they had sunk their roots into Kansas and they weren't going to leave no matter what. There's an identity with it, a sense of pride that you survived. It was a hard, hard life. It was so hard, but they stuck it out and they don't want to leave. And even though they know they're now in a, a musical chairs game where the music stops every once in a while and a lot of people don't have a seat, and that's whenever the commodity prices go down and costs go up. And if you have too much debt, you end up having to sell the farm or leave the farm and lease it to a neighbor. You are betting that you're not going to be the one without a chair. And they all believe they're not going to be left without a chair. And so when they do leave or when they do lose, they do it quietly and they're ashamed. And it's not like other places where people are saying, hey, help us, help us. The culture of Kansas is bootstraps. We can do this without your help. We do it on our own. We are self-sufficient. Well, of course, no one is. So what's been happening in Kansas has been happening quite silently. A lot of the cities that I worked with as an engineer and a planner they were wholly dependent on government subsidy to keep them running. I was working on sewer systems and water systems and roadways and, and trying to do just basic infrastructure. You could look across and see the same people working on schools. All of this was essentially adding more 
to a city that was a fraction of the size that it was and, and was becoming e- even smaller. How does this mentality of, let's just say, rugged independence and uh, you know bootstrapping, how do people deal with that when they really are in a place that is wholly dependent on essentially handouts and subsidies to meet just basic needs that people have? Being able to go to a doctor, being able to go to a, a school, these places can't afford them on their own. They absolutely deny that they are dependent on subsidies. Kansans, Kansas farmers receive a billion dollars a year in farm aid, whether it's farm insurance or whatever. The number that shows up in Environmental Working Group, which is really the place that you can find every state's annual federal support for the farm industry. It's a billion dollars a year. They think that that is not a handout. They think that is something they have earned and they believe that they are due that by the fact that they are taking on the risk of raising food for the world. They really don't see themselves as taking aid. They don't understand that is aid. They really do have a mythology of we depend on our on our own. And yet they have stopped having gardens. I grew up, you go to my friend's house in the country and they all have these massive gardens. They don't really do that anymore because nobody has time because they're all operating at maximum capacity for the crops that they're selling. So they really don't even have time to grow those gardens anymore. I was talking to the Heart Association and other nonprofits that are trying to bring back fresh produce to rural areas. And we have to teach people how to grow gardens again. Like, how can that be? How can that be? It's just crazy. Yeah. But, but it's because they're maxed out working as hard as they can to produce as much grain as, and whether it's sorghum, you know, corn, wheat, whatever the grain is that they're, you know, and they rotate crops. So it's not just one grain, but it's, we're mostly a, a wheat state. They're maxed out. They are working themselves to death. They've never worked harder. They've never worked longer hours. You can't accuse them of not working. So they don't see it as they're dependent on others. They see it as they're part of an industry that is producing something that the society at large and the world at large needs and that they're given certain allowances and certain government supports to make it possible for them to do this. It's a different mentality. And they don't realize how important fresh produce is. They don't think it's a problem that they're eating highly processed food that they buy at Walmart and when they go on their weekly trip two hours away to do a massive shop of highly processed food. They don't understand the health implications of that. They don't understand the obesity crisis that they're experiencing. They don't understand it. I know that there are people who are listening today who say, 
wow, that's a blanket statement. They don't understand. I've been in the same place you are. It's one of these things where you kind of slide into it. All of a sudden, the only food you can get is from the convenience store and you wind up eating Ho-Ho's and Mountain Dew because literally there's not much more than that there. It's the interesting parallel between the inner city and depopulated rural areas. Culturally, those people in depopulated rural areas, one, they're in Kansas, they're white with almost out exception. Um, they're not a lot of farm workers. It's not like there's an immigrant farm worker population. There is in southwest Kansas for the slaughterhouses. But by and large, the machines are the farm workers. And they would never see themselves as having anything in common with an inner city family where the mom is working three jobs, dads, you know, maybe there or not. They don't see themselves as having anything to do with those people, but they have so much in common. And you you wish that they could understand that. They would have a lot more empathy for each other. I also feel like there's a sense where, let's just say urban voters look at the urban poor and see them with some empathy. I do think often the case, or at least it's my sense, that when urban you know, people who depend on the crops coming out of a place like Kansas look at these right-wing, proud, bootstrapping people out on the plains, they don't have that degree of empathy for them. They say, you know, this is part of the deal. Uh, you guys made this case for yourself. Am I overgeneralizing there? In Kansas, very specifically, there is a, there is a very big rural-urban divide. Politics plays into it. The urban areas around Kansas City particularly are far more progressive culturally than the rural areas. They feel like the rural areas are holding them back from policies that would be better for the whole state. And the rural areas just fight change. The lack of empathy for the rural areas is grounded in the rural areas' lack of understanding that what progressive policies would bring them. Right. When you're slowly dying, yeah. (laughs) They don't believe progressive policies have anything to offer them. In Kansas in particular, they, in 2012, they slashed their taxes. They eliminated business taxes on all LLCs. It was about a billion dollars a year that they cut out of their taxes. The biggest companies in Kansas are LLCs. Coke Industries, hello. They gutted their budget. They could no longer afford their schools, afford hospitals, and the rural voters voted overwhelmingly for this tax cut because they're all LLCs because every farmer is an LLC. And they couldn't comprehend that that meant they would not have any money for their schools or hospitals. All they could see was, we pay too much taxes, and they, in their minds, those taxes went to the city. You don't feel a lot of sympathy if you're in the city saying, no. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. The cities feel captive to the power of the rural areas to inhibit 
the funding of social services. So there is a real, very specific and real and justified rural-urban conflict. But what the people in the rural areas don't necessarily comprehend is that this is a battle they're losing because they're losing people. Kansas is about to have one fewer representative in Congress. The voting strength of rural Kansas is now diminishing rapidly. The Kansas representatives in Washington that remain have no political heft because there's all of Kansas votes Republican no matter what. They have the House seats, the Senate seats, the governor, that you know, maybe that'll change with some moderate Republicans, but Trump doesn't have to worry about losing the Kansas voters. He won them overwhelmingly. So he doesn't have to worry if his trade policies hurt them. So there's no political power left in the state. And the fewer people that are there, the less power they have. It's like watching a state circle the drain. Right. Now, say here in Minnesota, we've got so many cities where uh, there are meatpacking places and poultry processing, uh, where we've had this huge influx of immigration. You know, cities that have been German for the last 100 years are now solidly Hispanic. And you go there and the restaurants are Hispanic and the grocery stores are Hispanic. And they're, they're very fascinating places. They're a lot of fun in a lot of ways, but a huge cultural shift. You see this going on a little bit in Kansas. Can you talk about it and what impact it's having? It's a tricky thing in Kansas. The only industries that are attracting people to rural Kansas are meatpacking and food processing, some dairies, and they need low-wage workers. So Kansas is overwhelmingly white. It's a state that's getting whiter. It's like one of the only states in the country that's increasingly white. The only towns that are growing, well, Kansas City and Wichita grow, but outside of that, it's really down in southwest Kansas where they are bringing in as many workers as they can get to operate feedlots and slaughterhouses and dairies. It's a cultural problem for Kansas because these are not populations that they're excited about. So on one hand, you have Chris Kobach, who's the uh, Secretary of State, who's on a mission to stop immigration to the country. I mean, he's in charge of the voter fraud initiative for Trump. You know, he, he believes we have too much immigration and he's running for governor of Kansas. He might win. And Kansas needs these new work, needs these workers for the, to support these businesses without immigrants. These businesses don't survive. So you have this culture clash within the state of people understanding that and people fighting it and people wanting to go back to a time that will never exist again. You know, it just is hard to explain the attraction. I mean, I can't imagine how Chris Kobach has a chance of being governor, but he has a very good chance of being governor and squashing the only industries that have been growing. Kansas City is is an interesting community because the industry is all on the Missouri side of that city. The bedroom communities on the 
Kansas side exist because there's really strong public schools there. So those communities are fighting tooth and nail to raise taxes because the only thing they have for for the, going for them is their extraordinarily stellar public schools. That's not a big industry place. They're not a lot of businesses. The businesses go over to the Missouri side. It's a no-win game for Kansas to lower taxes to attract those businesses to its side because what they need are the taxes. It's just one of those weird little anomalies. And Wichita is a town that used to be a big Boeing production plant that's now that's been shuttered and it's civil aviation and it used to be, it was the home of Pizza Hut and it used to have a big Pizza Hut headquarters and PepsiCo and that all was shut and it's all been replaced by Coke Industries. Coke is the big game in town. Wichita just gets whiter and whiter as those blue collar jobs go away and the white collar oil and gas industry jobs take their place. You talk a little bit about organic farming. I think a lot of uh, a lot of people hear this and they think, yeah, organic farming, we should be doing that. It's a tiny percentage of people doing it. It involves substituting essentially labor for chemicals and other capital. Can you talk a little bit about organic farming in Kansas and maybe where it could help a little bit? Overwhelmingly, I heard again and again, if only our farmers would get out of the commodity grain business, the commodity crop business, because the commodity prices are down and trade wars push them further down and it's a no-win game. And they want their farmers to get into crops where the higher quality the crop, the higher the price. The most obvious way to do that, if you're a big farmer, is heirloom and organic grains. Because it's not so much, you know, to save the planet or something, but consumers pay 10 times the price for those. And if you move into that sector, you are moving out of the commodity game. There's so few farmers doing it in Kansas that you have a huge challenge of how do you get that grain to market because the whole infrastructure for moving grain around is a commodity infrastructure and it doesn't allow for separating and protecting and differentiating your crops from the larger mass of commodity crops. So you're seeing organics in Western Kansas. The uh, the example I use in the story is a a farmer outside of St. Francis, which is the far northwest corner of Kansas, because that's only three hours from Denver. And Denver is a place where you can sell that grain in the organic market. You can capture that premium. If you're in most of the rest of Kansas, the trip to any market to Kansas City or Denver to sell that grain is considerably longer. So it's harder to play the game, harder to get that premium the cost of getting the grain to market is too high to take the risk. And you are also leaving the chemical support system that 
you have relied on for generations. And most of these farmers don't know how to grow crops any other way. And if they move to organics, they have to buy new equipment because there's no workers. There's nobody to help you. There's no support infrastructure. So where it's feasible, you, I'm seeing people experiment, but it's a hard transition to make in a state like Kansas. I ended up, after reporting stories, hurting deeply for everyone in rural Kansas because they played a game that everyone told them was the only game to play. They played it as hard and as with as, and threw themselves into it and threw everything they had into it, all their savings, their life blood, their everything they had into it. And they have been and they watched their fathers do that and their grandfathers do that. And they are playing that game as hard as they can. And it's a game that is stacked against them. And there's precious little they can do to win. I hurt for them. And I understand the anger. You know, they've played a game by the rules. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. Why aren't they winning? They're complicit in their own demise, but, you know, aren't we all? You know, if you tell any of us that if you work really hard and here's the rules and play this game, you are going to be the master of your universe. You're going to be self-sustaining. You're going to be the master of your world. Your kids will prosper. Your family will prosper. You'll be secure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just not happening. I mean, it's happening for some If you've been a smart financial person, if you've been really clever and you've kept yourself abreast of all the technology and all of the, and you've played the game in clever ways, you can win. There's huge farmers that are winning hand over fist in Kansas, but they're winning because the numbers are now in their court. They can win. They have enough critical mass that they can absorb the farmers that others are leaving. They can keep up with the technology. They can play the game to win. But the small guys are dying. It feels like a class of Mensa members where you're grading on a curve and like certain of them have to fail every year. You can work as hard as you want, but a certain number of you are going to be gone next year, no matter what you do. That's a brutal life. It's a brutal game. And you know, taking yourself out of that game by going organic, I think it's really tough. I don't think that they aren't doing it because they're not willing to take a risk. I think they're not doing it because they can't afford to take that risk. Right. When everything's so tight, it's really hard to find the extra stuff to experiment. I know with a lot of the small towns that I worked with, Part of my job as an engineer was to get them federal grants and state grants to help them do big things. A lot of this was, you know, you've got 300 feet of leaking pipe and you don't have the money to fix it. So let's get you a grant to put in two miles of new pipe and fix the little bit you got. And you look and it's like, this is just buying them time. As I started to think about this concept of buying you time, it brought me back to my, my grandmothers, actually, who both died of cancer. And at a while, you were 
buying them time. And it became a question of, are the things you're doing to buy them time actually worse in not only in quality of life, but it, are you actually shortening their life in the process? I started to mentally mess around with this idea of hospice care. You know, is there a way where we know the end is coming to do this, where we can have the highest quality experience in the final time and be compassionate about it so that there's the least amount of hurt possible. When I would bring that up to people, people were offended. They would get mad at me, like, don't ever speak about that. That's horrible. And again, it kind of reminded me of when people die because there's a certain amount of grieving process. And, you know, we don't want to talk about it. And how dare you? Is this something we need to talk about? Is this the way that we need to talk about it in some places? Well, I couldn't find anyone in the state of Kansas who had any thoughts, ideas, proposals for state programs to support rural Kansas. Nothing, nada. I talked to the congressman from out there, and that's because of this draconian tax cuts they had in 2012 that were only two-thirds reinstated in 2016. There's no money for them in the state. And because of their mentality of bootstrapping it outside of the billion dollars in farm subsidies and farm supports, they don't believe in asking for help. So the one thing that was happening was a group of nonprofits had gotten together and they had put together a fund of grants and loans to support getting fresh fruits and vegetables and local grocery stores. I initially was going there to write the story about this effort. And when I realized you can't write about this effort because it is only hospice care. It is palliative care for the dying. And you can't write about it unless you first write the story that they're dying. These programs were presented to me as the way to save these towns and that to build the, rebuild the infrastructure of these small towns, you have to start with food cultures. And, you have to, and, and I'm a big believer in food culture and the power of food to unite and the power of food to heal. And I was expecting to be writing a story about how this was the way to rebuild. And what I found was that they needed fresh fruits and vegetables so that the death would be less painful. That's a really hard story to write. I believe that a lot of things can be done to rebuild communities and food culture and supporting food culture and supporting healthy food is one of those things. But you have to do it in the context of a town that can be saved. I started looking around saying, okay, who's trying to figure out how to regionalize this rural landscape? It's so sparsely populated. You're going to be hours away from healthcare, but nobody's saying, okay, we're going to turn this patchwork of 600 counties, you know, 600 counties with an average of, you know, three people a square mile. We're going to turn it into an, a patchwork of 200 counties where the average is 50 people a square mile. And we're going to get rid of all this redundant county infrastructure that's 
stupid and we're going to rationalize this territory. The counties are the size they are because that was the, they were the size of what it took someone to drive a buggy from the edge of the county to the county seat was one day. That's not a really good reason to have those counties that size now. But nobody wants to do the hard work of it's social engineering, of rationalizing that infrastructure and reducing costs and trying to find a size of community that is self-sustaining, that if you did get make sure they had fresh produce, they could then start to grow again. The competition for who's going to be that town that wins, they're all kind of dying together. The thing that I saw in northwest Kansas, there were a trio of communities, Atwood, Bird City, and St. Francis. They're close to Denver, close enough to Denver, those three towns, to start to cooperate with each other, to get specialty crops to Denver. That's as rare as you can imagine that towns were willing to cooperate. They are eliminating the possibility of anyone doing anything to help them because they are determined that they're going to survive and they're going to do it on their own. This is where I got to as well, because I had a, a number of these cities. For me, I sat down and did the math on their economy and I said, the only way this works is if you actually create a town again. And that means that of your five towns, four of them essentially are going to go away. And one of them will be a place with enough critical mass and enough capital where you can actually do things like have a functioning school or have a pharmacy. It was too hard. You couldn't do it. They had to, like one place I was working with, they had two small towns and they didn't have enough for the schools, they couldn't close a school in one town. So what they did is they closed the schools in both and put a school halfway in between. And I'm like, well, you just, you just slit both your throats. You know, you took all the energy out of your town and put it in the middle of nowhere. I felt like at a certain point it became a human problem, not like a policy problem even. And as a human problem, I started to think as humans, we are just flawed in a way that I don't know is this can be fixed. I felt very pessimistic about that. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of got to that point and it made me very sad. I left feeling incredibly sad. I couldn't tell anyone what they should do, but I couldn't believe that they were willing to die alone rather than to find a way to connect and move people around, move themselves around. I couldn't figure it out. They have to decide that, okay, we're going to consolidate our towns and our schools and we're going to move. The problem with that is there's really no housing. And if you decide you're going to leave your house and move to the other town, you can't sell your house to somebody else. So you're walking away from the only savings you have. You know, people just can't do that. The town that, that wins, it's not just that they survive. Those people have their savings intact and everybody who tries to move there doesn't. 
So they have to make real hard choices. Okay, we're going to move houses. We're going to build new houses for the people that are, you know, there's a whole level of cooperation and giving up that I just don't think um, Americans have ever done. You kind of alluded to earlier this parallel with some of the inner city poor neighborhoods. I mean, I've been I've been to Detroit where you'll go through a neighborhood and there will be houses burnt down and boarded up and with trees growing up in them. And then there'll be one house where there's flowers in the flower boxes and the yard is mowed and it looks to be in decent shape. And you're like, why would you be there? Can't you see the writing on the wall? Why wouldn't you move? And there's a deep personal story as to why they're not moving. One of the things I found is that a lot of in these towns where so many people have left, the people that remain mow the lawns of the abandoned houses and maintain the look because they have pride in their town and they don't want people to know. And I'm like, who are you impressing? But they do that. They put up a good front. I won't say we don't have rural people in this audience. I think we do. But I think the overwhelming amount of people are people who live in cities of all sizes, small towns up to to major metropolitan areas. Why should they care about this story? You feel deeply about this. I feel deeply about this. I think we're moved on an individual level of the difficulties that people are experiencing. Why should someone living in Minneapolis or New York or, or LA or even Wichita care? They should care because land that doesn't have people on it is land that's abused. Land that the opportunity to just turn the state of Kansas into a factory floor where no one cares about the natural resources, no one cares about the Ogallala Aquifer and how it's silting in, no one cares about the soil, the air, Those are public natural resources that we as a country should care about the depletion. And we should care that we protect the environment. And no one cares about an environment they don't see or touch or feel. And when nobody's out there, when nobody goes out there, that land isn't cared for. And that lack of care will be, I think, something that we all pay a price for. You're listening to Corey Brown. Corey, it's been wonderful to chat with you. I hope we can do this again at some point. I've seen some of your other writing and it's fascinating. And I hope we can start to share more of that with with our audience, who I, I think would find a lot of value in it. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Jack. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. You take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns, even the small rural ones. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. 
always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.